0: Hello and welcome to episode 106 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. It's Richard here once again, and for this episode, I'm joined by a special guest. Dr. Haley Lewis is going to talk to us about her career, her career decisions, what she does in a typical week, and really interestingly... Um, the discoveries she's made uh, as part of the research she did for her doctorate in occupational psychology very recently. We had a great chat. I hope you'll enjoy listening to it as much as I did being part of it. Big thanks to Haley for her time. She's a very busy person, so it was great to get uh, an hour with her. If you have any follow-up questions, um, have a look at the show notes. I'm putting Haley's contact details in there. Or indeed, you can contact us on Twitter at Pocket Psych or on email, which is email at com. As ever, thanks for listening. Hayley, it is great to have you here today. Thank you so much for making the time. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thanks. I'm good. Um, it's it's no longer windy here, so that's that's good. Um, I, I no longer feel like I'm about to be whisked off to Oz. Um, so yeah, all is good here.
0: We've had days in a row of really bad storms. I came in to campus today wondering if the building was actually going to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very relieved to find my office was was still here and that we can actually have this conversation without torrential rain. Um, I hope I don't have a jinx to us, but anyway, we'll we'll crack on and we'll do what we can within, uh, within the weather allowance. So listen, I would love to introduce you. but I think you could do a much better job um, to the listeners. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you and what it is that you do as a psychologist?
1: okay thanks um so i'm Hayley and I am a chartered psychologist and a registered occupational psychologist um, as Richard will know um, and hopefully some of the listeners will know that is not an occupational therapist, which is what some of my clients um, ask so my speciality is leadership and management behavior and how this impacts um, workplace culture and team performance. I've always been really curious about the the power and impact that, that leaders and managers can have, particularly middle managers, Richard. Um, I, I often mm. feel like they're an overlooked group, um, kind of written off as boring, doing the boring jobs. Um, but I often talk about the flabby middle. So, you know middle managers can often make up the bulk of an organization and as you and I know they can make life really easy in an organization or really hard so I'm passionate about middle managers um, and, and kind of working with them but I also do lots of other other bits and bobs so I teach at several universities and um, I write and yeah I I, I Variety is a spice of life, certainly for me. So I have my fingers in lots of pies.
0: And um, pies brings us back to the flabby middle. I was about <laughs> to try and defend myself there, but I realised you weren't talking about me. Uh, we haven't got the video running for this, so it's just in your imagination. <laughs> <Thank goodness. laughs> so so a very, very uh, brief but but brilliant intro there. W- what got you into this in the first place?
1: So... Um, um, I'm always a little bit embarrassed about this answer, Richard, if I'm honest, because it's such a rarity. But I fell into occupational or organisational psychology by accident, really. I was working at the BBC in the late 90s and I'd had a series of kind of dead end jobs. Um, I, I graduated from my undergrad in the mid 90s and kind of set off like Dick Whittington, back to London with my best friends, didn't want to move home, was fiercely independent. And so my, my two best pals and I, we rented a flat that we couldn't afford. So I took any job I could, long story short. And I ended up working at the BBC's conference centre. So it had a, it used to have a conference centre on Marlebone High Street and I loved working on Marlabone High Street. Um, and so that was like supporting conferences and events. Anyway, I was asked to help out at a leadership event. Um, So it's for a group of leaders in a department. And they were spending the weekend up in the Lake District doing all sorts of things like chucking themselves off mountains and going (laughs) through caves and, you know, all that stuff. And so I was asked to kind of, they weren't really chucking themselves off mountains, listener. Um, They were doing it safely. Um, And so I was asked to kind of help out and coordinate and on the last night before we traveled back I happened to have been seated next to the overall boss of the department and um, he made the mistake of asking me what I thought about the weekend now I was 25 um, so still fairly green but um, a bit precocious, a bit ballsy, I think it's fair to say. And so he asked me what I thought, and, and I told him exactly what I thought, that I thought it was a waste of money. Um, I couldn't see the difference that had been made. There were still issues between some of the members of the leadership team. Um, yeah, I think that was also fueled by two glasses of red wine. But um, <laughs> when yeah, feedback no.
0: should be fueled by wine it should yeah. be at that point
1: and yeah. and for uh listeners newer to the profession don't do that um but in all seriousness I, I kind of then got the train back to london from the lake district and i thought oh taxi for woodland as my it was my maiden name then um it's oh that's it it's over and sure enough on Monday morning I got called into my boss's office now she was the head of the psychology team but she was also looking after the conference center because the previous manager had left unexpectedly so I got called into her office and I thought oh this is it and she said oh um such and such really liked what you had to say I (laughs) thought You showed great insight and aptitude and thinks you make a natural psychologist and we'd like you to move into the psychology team and basically go through an apprenticeship. Um, And we will sponsor you on a master's. And um, so I kind of sat there dumbfounded, probably for the first time in my life. Um, So she said, go away and find a master's um, in occupational psychology to apply to so first of all I went to ask Jeeves uh, if you remember ask Jeeves or you <laughs> google and typed in what is occupational psychology um thinking hey eh? um and then anyway so um got onto the program at City this is in 1999 and the rest is I think it's fair to say is history I I'm not going to lie I struggled with the master's Not because I don't have the intelligence, but I just didn't put the effort in. I was in my mid-twenties, early mid-twenties, would rather go out partying, (laughs) had met my now husband. um,
0: You were in London.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, but loved 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 the work so you know i was fortunate enough to work in a team inside one of the biggest organizations in the world covering each of the disciplines that that we learn as Oxyc. so i got a real kind of frontline experience in assessment centers training and development leadership development culture um so yeah so that's kind of It probably doesn't feel like a very potted history, but believe me, that is a potted history as to how the hell I got into this. Um, So it wasn't deliberate. I never kind of sat as a four year old doodling with my crayons thinking, oh, I want to be an occupational psychologist one day. Um, But I've always been curious about the human condition and behaviour. And I've always kind of really paid attention to that, even as a little girl. Um, but I happen to fall into this by accident, but I feel very, very privileged that I'm working in a profession that I absolutely adore.
0: I I know there are some early career psychologists who listen to this, and I know they will be grinding their teeth yes, um, listening to yep. that story, because it's just fantastic to be offered that kind of opportunity yep. and your talent spotted in that way. Mm. Um, and so... Here you are today, mm-hmm. uh, a few years later, doing something that you said, you know, you really, really love. Mm-hmm. What would a typical week involve for you as a practitioner? What kind of things do you spend your time on?
1: Yeah, so um, I'd say about 50% of my work through Halo is um, executive coaching. So one-to-one executive coaching coaching. Uh, working with senior managers all the way up to board level. Um, and those programs, as you know, can vary from kind of your traditional six-month, you know, one session a month for six months or go on for much longer, um, depending on kind of the, the depth of the issues that the leader is, is kind of wanting to work on. So that's around 50% of my work with Halo. And then the other 50% is made up of kind of workshops or courses um, or with leaders and managers covering a range of topics on, you know, high-performance teams. Um, I gave a talk to 200 leaders today on um, the characteristics of high-performance organisational cultures and their role as leaders and some practical ways they can operationalise values and stuff. Um, so that's the, that's the other kind of 50 percent and, and within that as well i i do team building and team development and team coaching um, but my the stuff that i really love that gives me energies is like workshops and courses um with leaders and managers I, I love it and then i have to balance my work with halo psychology with teaching um, commitments um so i've got quite a few of those i i work at several universities <clears throat> I've just taken on responsibility with one um, on supporting people going through their chartership through to professional doctorate. Mm. Um, so that's kind of, so I have to be really strict with my time, but certainly that's how I spend time with Halo.
0: Big overlap uh, in our interests there. And mm. the thing that jumped out of me was that um, love of interaction and you know, being in the room with people. So, what's it been like for the last couple of years when that kind of activity wasn't exactly possible?
1: I, I surprised myself, Richard. I don't know if you found the same, but um, well, first of all, when there was the panic, when everything came out of my diary, the 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 the, the irony was um, when the first lockdown happened in March twenty twenty. Um, I was on course to have my biggest ever quarter in terms of financial turnover and profit um, ever in, in kind of over the past kind of previous, at that point, previous four years. And and to see it all come out of my diary <laughs> um, mm. was soul destroying at the beginning. And then I think as organizations, as my clients began to get their own heads around what was going on, stuff started to come back in and, and I felt I felt really comfortable actually converting to online. So in a in in a previous role, so I, I had quite a squiggly career after I did my masters. I actually ended up so I went into I moved from the BBC into local government. And then ended up in a variety of operational, management, and strategic leadership roles. It actually took me temporarily a bit away from the field, so I ended up covering, you know, doing stuff around customer services and digital transformation and and kind of digital services, amongst other things. And so, actually, I felt really comfortable with the as a result of that experience of what it meant to convert things to digital how to help my clients through that space Um, and ended up just yeah really taking to it I I think I've got too used to never having to leave my house Um, (laughs) and yeah and I quite like that you know I think I think we all realize the impact of commuting on our well-being stress levels productivity i feel i've been much more pro- productive actually um whilst working from home whilst delivering stuff online Um, but I'm also conscious of the privilege around that not everybody has that privilege to be able to do that
0: that is so true and and I think a lot of the narrative about people's experience of work over the last two years has been very broad brush and it hasn't Mm. taken account of the diversity of roles um, out there and the the diversity of experiences people have had I, I would put myself in the lucky camp as well
1: yeah I mean I was I was um Again, in the first year of the pandemic, I was approached by a a public sector organisation where I think it's fair to say the chief executive had got giddy with excitement at um, the cost saving opportunities of everyone working from home. And and so like so many well-intentioned leaders then decided that they were going to get rid of as many buildings as possible in order to save public money. And the head of OD for this particular organisation was savvy enough to think, well, I'm not sure this is right, and contacted me. And so we did a rapid review of the evidence of the literature of the scientific research. And alongside that, I did some interviews and focus groups. And, and I remember interviewing one young female social worker, and she was sat on the stairs. She she lived in rented accommodation. She shared a room with her boyfriend. There were, I think, about eight of them in the house, and so for our interview, she was sat on the stairs because she didn't have another space. Her husband, her boyfriend had um, nabbed their bedroom first for a one-to-one with his line manager. And you know, that's such a powerful example of the assumptions we make around... Um, that just this assumption that working from home is brilliant for everybody and we should be doing more of it, and it's it's just not the case for, for everybody, as as that example shows.
0: Absolutely, and we could we could come up with dozens, hundreds of of similar examples. It's yeah. not that it's not even ideal; it's not even possible for some people. And um, while that change is you know well intentioned, uh, I think that's a great example in a nutshell of psychology and practice. <clears throat> You might be passionate about this change, but what does the science tell us? And can we use that to help inform the decision making? So, a lovely, um, lovely snapshot there. An evidence based practitioner, you recently um, completed your doctorate.
1: I did. Do you know? It's still weird now. <laughs> Dr. Richard McKinnon. Um, did, yeah, no, when, no, when people no, call no, me no, no. Dr. Lewis, <laughs> I do have to kind of look behind myself and think, "Who? Hey, what?" Um, so the first time a student called me that last month, I, I had a little giggle. Um, the, the four-year-old inside me had a little giggle. Um, but yes, I did. I I completed. I did my completed my Fiver just before Christmas. So the twenty-first of December, it's etched in my brain. Um, so I'm just going through the minor. They might be minor, but there are many amendments um, at the moment, just to just for that kind of formality. Mm. Um, but yeah, last two year, two and a bit years um, w- were tough. Trying to keep a business going in a pandemic, look after my terminally ill mum, and do a doctorate. Um, but actually, I felt like the doctorate saved me. Um, I, I kind of put all my frustration and grief into that. And I think that's why I got it done within two years.
0: And a lovely Christmas present, in a sense, to yeah. have that wrapped up and you could just, you know, enjoy your holidays then. But Um, wind back a couple of years? What prompted you to set yourself up for what is a demanding thing to do anyway? But as Mm -hmm. you say, doing it while working, I'll put my hand up to that as well. I look back and wonder, (laughs) what were you thinking? (laughs) But what were you thinking, Haley? Why did you decide you were going to put yourself through this? When listeners should know, this isn't mandatory for us. We do not have to have a doctorate to operate as an independent psychologist right now. so what what was it?
1: Yeah, I think there are a number of motivations really for me. Um, I'm always somebody, and I've always been somebody who likes to get my teeth into a challenge. So um, during my twenties, it was my masters and, and kind of moving in, moving from one sector to another. In my thirties, it was getting my chartership done, and then. Kind of stepping into bigger and bigger leadership roles that took me actually further away from psychology for a bit. And so in my forties, you know, um, I thought, actually, what do I want my forties to have been about? Yes, I've set up a business, but I want to feel more stretched. And so um, I was teaching at Kingston, and that's where the professional doctorate originally started, and then it, it got moved to Birkbeck and the team had asked me for a while, why don't you do a doctorate? And it just never felt like the right time. And then I just thought, when is the right time? And, you know, you're now in your later 40s. And so I actually had this idea that I wanted to get it done before I was 50. So I've just turned 48. And um, so I set myself that target first. It was, like a, it was like a personal thing. What do I want the big challenge for me to get my teeth into in, the, in my 40s? That, But more fundamentally than that, I think as you and I know, Richard, um, we work in a competitive profession, you know, um, there are hundreds of oxites coming through each year. And, um, I mean, there are lots of jobs as you'll see, as people will see on who follow anyone who follows me on LinkedIn, you'll see myself and others share jobs on LinkedIn. So there are, there are jobs, but when you run your own business, I think you need something to separate yourself out. So there are hundreds, if not thousands, of coaching and training, small coaching and training consultancies in the UK, some of them run by psychologists. And when so many people are getting masters now, what then can give you the edge? And so I thought the doctorate Mm -hmm. would give a further edge. And then in terms of the topic... As a female business owner, I was just getting increasingly frustrated with the absolute nonsense that I see on social media in terms of the stuff that's peddled around what it means to be a successful business owner um, and the things that, you know, business owners must do and women business owners must do in order to succeed. And a lot of it is just nonsense. It's just vacuous stuff that's put up just for kind of clickbait or a fancy Instagram Instagram picture. So I really kind of wanted to challenge that and do something that was different from my day-to-day and where there is a lack of good research in the field of occupational psychology into entrepreneurship. It's not an area we tend to look at as ox We look at assessment centres and leadership behaviour and blah, blah, blah. And actually, we don't really look at entrepreneurship. So I instantly thought, oh, there's a gap. And so that was the third reason. So I had three clear reasons.
0: Did those keep you going all the way through?
1: Absolutely. They yeah. absolutely kept me going. I'm I'm often asked, um, both while doing the doctorate, but also since completing it, you know, what kept you going when when there's been so much going on personally and business-wise. And I felt, it felt like a cause to me, Richard. It just, mm. I feel so strongly about the manipulation I see of new business owners in particular, new female business owners um, who are often parting with hard-earned cash that they don't often have on ridiculous programs that f- promise them the world, but actually deliver very little. Um, kind of, and in conjunction with that, you know, a lot of my female coaching clients in corporate roles—so um, could be director level or or whatever. More and more of them were saying to me, "I don't think I want to move into chief exec role, or I don't think I want to kind of." progress you know I'm in my 50s or I'm in my late 40s I've always wanted to kind of set up my own florist or I've always wanted to set up my own coaching business but I don't think I can and so it was it was wanting to honor those women and try and create a blueprint for them to give them the courage and confidence and belief that they too can live the life that they want um Mm. And and successfully navigate those early years. It's their voices that kind of kept me going. And it was also my own, as I say, my anger and frustration at the manipulation I see online, um, particularly targeting female business owners.
0: And... You know, there is a very low bar to entry to putting your views across online. And if you do that with authority, it can sound like a simple route to success and, Mm -hmm. you know, flying in the face of what it means to be evidence-based. But of course, most people in the world are susceptible, because we're humans, to attractive messages and attractive Mm -hmm. images. And of course, some of those, I would imagine, you're the expert here, but some of those could contribute to some, maybe some self-limiting beliefs on the parts of people who were considering um, this route to being an entrepreneur and then getting this messaging about what they need to have or should be like. Is that something that you've observed?
1: Absolutely, yeah. In particular, and I don't know if you've seen this. This so so one of the main um, one of the main areas I was looking at in both my studies uh, during my doctorate was this idea that the idea of a successful entrepreneur and business owner. Um, is very is still very rooted in kind of masculine, dare I say, it, misogynist ideas mm. um, of what it means to to be an entrepreneur. It's interesting. There's a number of studies when you say the word entrepreneur to people, both men and women, um, they think of a man, um, and that still exists now. Um, but more fundamental than that, and and this bore out in a number of the studies that I looked at, we define success in financial terms in economic terms so in terms of size of profit turnover number of sales are you growing um in terms of are you are you getting employees um, and my instinct was that that can't be the only definition of success and and actually that's really off putting for many people um i obviously didn't interview men it was a it was a female focused study mm. um but I'm assuming it might be the case for some men as well but certainly the women involved in my study it, initially it was off potting when you're seeing constant messages around the only way you can be seen as a successful business owner is if you're earning six or seven or it's seven figures now um wow <laughs> yeah and
0: I pack up and go home
1: <laughs> do you know what I mean and and I see this perpetuated on platforms, particularly like um, Instagram and to to a lesser extent, LinkedIn. But I'm seeing more and more female entrepreneurs do that, you know, posing in front of their allegedly posing in front of their kind of mansion and their, you know, Mercedes. And um, it constantly makes can make people feel like they're less than that I can never achieve that. And so why bother? And so that's why I wanted to offer up Mm -hmm. something different. And indeed, in my second study, what came out of the interviews with the women, the very successful women business owners is there is another way to define success.
0: What jumped out of that part of the research then? How were they defining their success?
1: Yeah, so this isn't this isn't a naive (laughs) So I'm not naive. You know, we live in a capitalist society and money makes the world go round. So I think the first thing to kind of just flag up is out of the factors that define success, one of them was earning enough money. But the emphasis is on enough money. So to pay a mortgage, to, you know, have a holiday with the family, if you've got a family, to have savings for a rainy day. So a number of the women in my study were the main wage earners in their family. So, you know, there was a lot of responsibility on them. Mm. Um, they, these weren't privileged women who could rely on others. They they had to earn money. And so money was a form of success, but earning enough. Um, the There were some other things. So, so other key factors that came out were, um, and more fundamentally actually having a great reputation so you know building a credible reputation where actually you didn't need to market yourself because it was word of mouth you'd get repeat business and that was backed up by having real tangible results and evidence and case studies so that was the that was the other factor actually being able to to tell a story Um, around the impact that you've had and that's backed up by evidence and then the other two factors so probably no surprise to you Richard freedom and autonomy came Mm. out hugely consistently across um, the interviews in my second study this idea of you know, if I want to go out for a cycle ride randomly one afternoon, I can, I don't need to ask for permission. If I want to take the Thursday and the Friday off and work Sunday, I can. And so the freedom that that comes with that and, and just also deciding who you do and don't want to work with, that was incredibly powerful in some of the anecdotes. And then finally, the, this idea of thriving. So um, there's a really interesting theory and I've I've loved it for ages, but it's it's actually a really lesser known theory amongst our profession. It's called The Theory of Thriving by Gretchen Spreitzer and colleagues. And it's this idea that when we're thriving, we are learning. So we are learning every day from what we're doing and we actually get our energy and vitality from what we're doing. And that came through loud and clear from every single woman I spoke to. One woman actually said she was in love with her business. So she used kind of the metaphor of love um, and how excited she felt about it. So, um, yeah, some really interesting novel things came out um, that actually go against the grain in terms of what other research have looked at and defined in terms of success
0: and yet um what i'm hearing there is something about very core needs for humans yes. um to drive this kind of risk because a lot of it is risk-taking you're not guaranteed success that's what mm. makes you an entrepreneur in a sense mm. um but also defining things on their terms not an objective um success which is expressed as a binary which is what we often see as well right so you're successful if this is in place or you're successful if you can do this whereas what you've relayed is a much more joined up view of what it means to experience some success.
1: Absolutely that I really like what you just said Richard around there's something about it's almost like we get our choice and agency back. Yes, there is huge risk with being your own boss. Um, and I could I can talk about that in terms of <laughs> my first four months of of kind of going from a really high profile leadership role to being my own boss and and the echo chamber, that was incredibly humbling and i'm the main wage earner in our family and seeing Mm. our savings go down was absolutely terrifying but it felt like the right thing to do and it's all worked out finally in the end um but yeah the actually having having choices and more importantly having the agency and power to do something with those is is what can make the difference for us as humans in terms of our happiness, our well-being, and whether or not we're thriving. And, and I think you're absolutely right. That absolutely came through in all of the conversations with the women. And, and I read a recent study. It was after my Viva, I hasten to add. Um, I read a recent study about there's been a surge of people, particularly women, leaving corporate life to set up on their own, because they're not getting the opportunities or the excitement that that they want. Mm. They're kind of being headed off at the pass corporately. So, yeah.
0: I, I mean, it makes sense, right, in, in a time of great upheaval mm. and a time when you can... Maybe consider what's important to you in life. You might spot options that weren't there before when the world seemed a lot more linear and predictable. Although probably we didn't feel that two years ago. But my word, two years ago was a lot more linear than the last two years have been. Um, and and I would I would maybe support that through my own experience of my clients. You know, looking at things anew, maybe rebalancing where they're placing. The emphasis on what's important to them in life—a very common one, right—is people wanting to ensure that where they live is really, really nice, and realizing I don't have to live within commuting distance of one office. I could live in a part of the country that really works for me and my family, or not wanting that hellish commute because you know they've realized it's it's draining and it's unpleasant. And it's not necessary for them. So things like that maybe prompt this uh, germ of an idea to do something very different.
1: I agree. I agree. And um, I think I think the pandemic has given many of us that time and space. Not everyone, again, I'm conscious of privilege mm. here, but has given many of us time and space to even if we don't want that time and space to think about what matters to us, what doesn't matter. I mean, personally, you know, the loss of my mother um, in at the end of 2020 and then experiencing my own changes as a woman, you know, I'm in my late 40s, I'm, I'm in perimenopause now, I don't have the energy that I used to have um, as, as that young whippersnapper aged 25 up in the Lake District. Um, and actually it's forced me to think about what makes a happy life. So I, I there've been times where I've actually turned down work, not often. I'm you know, I'm I'm not a billionaire or anything like that, because I'm just I don't I no longer want my week to be filled with back-to-back delivery of courses, for example. Mm. Pre-pandemic, I was out every day, um, with the exception of Fridays when I'd take my mum to the hospital. But I'd be out every day, you know, going around the country, delivering courses and wouldn't bat an eyelid. And the thought of doing that fills me with horror now. And so actually I've been playing around with my diary and you know, I I now only commit to one course a week, um, and then either side of that, I do coaching. But I've 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 been at pains to protect big chunks of space for thinking. And God, I realise I, how that must sound to some of your listeners. They're like, oh, um, but actually, for us as practitioners, having space to think and read about new research and write about it, or have run podcasts like this (laughs) is really fundamental to who we are surely as psychologists our role particularly as occupational psychologists is to make the world of work a better place and how can we do that if we're not giving ourselves time and space to reflect and think and learn and so the pandemic's actually forced me to do that and to recognize i am not a machine um And I read a brilliant book last year. It has to be one of the most powerful books I've read in the last 20 years. You might have heard of it. It's called Laziness Doesn't Exist. Mm -hmm. And it's by Dr. Devon Price. And it blew my mind about how the way we work this nine to five, Monday to Friday or seven days a week or, you know, 14, 16 hours a day you know, where that's come from and why it persists and why it shouldn't persist. So there's been lots of things that have got me recalibrating my own life, including how I work. Um, and, and in a way that's been, I feel really lucky um, to have been able to do that.
0: It sounds like a much more sustainable and rewarding approach. Mm. I'm going to put a link to that um book in the show notes. And I'll also recommend on a similar theme, Claudia Hammond's book, The Art of Rest. Mm. I don't know if you've come across that, but that that was a real eye-opener for me as well. The the need or the benefits of being intentional about rest you know it's not just when you can't do anything else and you can't even it's no 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 rest is important and it's it's a requirement between other things so that we can you know be our best selves or engage with whatever it is we want to do and um derive satisfaction from that and feel competence and not just be constantly nose to the grindstone
1: absolutely and you know i'm a, I'm a great believer and i talk about this a lot with students with clients the power of role models we know that that role models matter and as as kind of occupational psychologists workplace psychologists whatever you want to call yourself because that's for another day what we call ourselves (laughs) um people that know me know how i feel about that um but Surely, we have a responsibility, and I take our responsibility and our code of ethics and that really seriously. And so, if we're if we're telling organisations, if we're telling leaders or groups of employees about what they should be doing to live their best lives and thrive, and you know, have balance and all that stuff, if we're not doing that ourselves, then what the hell are we doing? So, I I, I see we have a responsibility to role model what that looks like. Actually, and show that it is possible um, to do that, even in large corporate organisations.
0: I that that's you know really important to hear that it can also be done in lots of different ways because we've all got different circumstances and and different demands. It's more. Um, loosely maybe a mindset or a perspective that you'd even think about these things rather than pursuing something because it was expected or it's the norm or don't we all um, rather than thinking about what's important in in my context. I'm going to put you on the spot, if that's okay, before we wrap up and only because you're a quick thinker. <laughs> when when you think about what came out of your research, and definitely fueled by that frustration at what what you had seen, are there any examples of messages you'd love to share so that listeners could be sort of forewarned that you know there's nothing to support this? So don't feel bad about yourself when you encounter it.
1: Well. So, so whilst uh, how how women business owners define success was one part of it was one of the pillars of my research the other was well actually what's what's the psychology behind that what are the what are the psychological factors that help women navigate and succeed during the early years of, of moving into business ownership so we know that the first three years of being a business owner, particularly for the first time, are the most vulnerable. Um, there are lots of kind of statistics banded about, but on average in the UK, around 60% of small businesses, micro-businesses shut up shop within the first three years. And So I was really curious about what is it about these women that have enabled them to survive that, to navigate? And they were at different stages in their journey. Um, and so in terms of takeaway messages for your listeners who might be interested in kind of setting up up on their own or as we know lots of oxites like to do um or might be in the early stages um one of the most fundamental factors so I looked at personality competencies and values mine is the first study to ever look at values in relation to business ownership Um, In terms of competencies, one of the standout, absolute standouts, was around the ability to build um, and maintain relationships. Now, I'm not talking about with clients. I'm talking about um, creating a, a network, a community, if you will. Every single woman I spoke to said they wouldn't have been able to navigate the ups and downs, the hurdles, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, without their network um, of other business owners. Some of them only had networks of all women. Others had women and men. Um, and a few of the women said that started even before they left their corporate role to set up on their own. And this is something that I talk to when I, I give career talks, um, to students on master's programs, and it's it's the thing that I say the most is n- your network starts now, you know, look around you, this is your beginning of your network, nurture it, protect it, honor it, continue to build it throughout your career because it will help you um, in the long run and and uh, that happened for me myself, you know my network is my professional network and my personal network is is substantial and it's helped me get lots of work as a business owner. So that so the competency that that's the one that really really stands out and I think is really important for your listeners. Honor and nurture and continue to build your network. Don't just wait until when you need when you think you need it, because it'll be too late then. Um, and then In terms of personality, I I kind of anchored things to the big five and psychological capital. And again, one of the strongest themes that came out was conscientiousness. So um, actually, it comes back to your point, Richard, about being intentional about how you go about your day, your week, your month. I feel like I'm about to break into the song from Friends. Um, But yeah, how how you kind of go about your day, whether you're in a corporate role or whether you're your own boss, how you structure and navigate that is really important. And, and a couple of my participants were late diagnosed ADHD, and and because I can imagine some listeners might be like, "Well, that's easy for for kind of neurotypicals," but maybe not others. But actually, that's that wasn't the case. Certainly in my second study, so having routines and systems in place was even more important to navigate the ups and downs of business ownership um and that stuff that stuff really matters um whether as i say whether you're a corporate employee or whether you're your own boss um so yeah those those are two kind of standouts um of advice for your listeners
0: so i i might summarize that as any big ticket one size fits all advice that looks or sounds like it might threaten relationships you value is maybe not something to follow Um, success at the cost of that connection with others. And, um, maybe to bring an awareness of your own personality, your own preferences, to think about what's going to aid you in the nuts and bolts of, of running. A business. I mean, I've outsourced my conscientiousness quite fundamentally (laughs) over the last seven and a half years. She knows who she is and uh, she is a a wonderful accountant. Um, But, you know, being realistic about this stuff, rather than messages like tear up the rule book, it doesn't Mm. matter, you know, this kind of stuff. when, When in fact, as you said, well, we live in a capitalist society and there is such a thing as the tax man and there are rules about how to run a business.
1: Yep. Absolutely spot on. And um it it, that's a really interesting point because um as well as the success factors the the kind of psychological factors aid success there were two that jumped out that could be potential hurdles they were so strong that I had to include them even though I was I, I was looking at what aids success rather than what hinders it. And one of those was around confidence and competence around finance. Hmm. Um, so it was a competency um, that was a potential hurdle. But what was really interesting is many of the the women I spoke to in my second study um, had put in place processes and systems to help them with that so as you said I mean I have an accountant as well Richard there's no way I could do that myself I do my own bookkeeping but my accountant is he's my best friend um (laughs) and as you say you know if you don't meet deadlines for paying your VAT if you're a VAT company um there is a big price to pay both financially but also legally potentially um and so, yeah, so so a lot of the women there was a high levels of self awareness about what they liked doing, what they didn't like doing, what they were good at, what they were less good at, and outsourcing where appropriate, um, and and kind of financing and accounting was one of those. That didn't mean they didn't pay attention to their accounts because you mm. do, um, mm. but there was that that support mechanism there um, to help with that. Um, and the other the other kind of potential hurdle was around. Uh, a reluctance, a reticent to, to do the hard sell. Um, so you know what I'm talking about, those, those, ugh, those sleazy people <laughs> that slide into your DMs on LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter um, and just do the hard sell without even having got to know you. And none of the women wanted to do that. They felt really uncomfortable with that. It wasn't authentic to who they are. And um but actually what they'd realize is you don't have to do that because if you're building a, a decent reputation, then others will do that for you. And so that was a way to kind of overcome this hurdle. But because we're constantly being told as business owners, you've got to do the hard sell, you know, and again that's perpetuated on programs like The Apprentice and Dragon's Den. Um Where we we tell ourselves we have to be that way. But actually, what my study shows, my second study shows, is you don't have to do that. Actually, it's about building really good relationships, doing high quality work, and then the work will speak for itself.
0: Mm. Which, you know, possibly could mean longer term business relationships, a more sustainable uh, approach to your business, but also back to values. feel like you've done the right thing by yourself by your business and by other people
1: absolutely spot on and i you know going back to the the conversation we had earlier about the pandemic the the thing that has helped me really well the, the thing that helped me survive as a business owner because i, I i've got lots of friends who've had who've had to close their businesses during the pandemic who. Um, run coaching and training consultancies or other kind of similar businesses and and the i think the reason i've survived is is i've got really loyal clients Mm. some of whom proactively reached out to me and deliberately gave me work that wasn't necessarily the kind of thing i'd normally do but they wanted in some way to to help halo Um, and i'm deeply indebted and grateful Um, to those clients but again it comes back to the kind of the 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 decent integrity driven real quality relationships that one builds with their clients
0: that is testament to the work that you've done because um, business is business and and people don't do that unless they really, really want to continue working with you so that's just fantastic to hear especially when yeah, lots of people have had a really tough time of it So I, I suppose we have a very varied listenership, which is great, but I know there'll be some people out there listening to this who have thought about going out to work for themselves or starting something new, maybe with someone else. And really what I'm hearing is it fits, it doesn't have to, but it does fit with what we've said on the podcast before, that it's important to know what matters. It's important to think long-term. It's important not to be limited, by any beliefs you have about yourself or others and to challenge that stuff and what you've said today and shared from your research is is just adds to that really there's no shortcuts there's no one size fits all and yet there are a plethora of ways that people can find satisfaction and their version of success in business we don't all have to follow what we find on on social media
1: absolutely I couldn't have put it better myself
0: I really appreciate your time today because we are online contacts, if not face-to-face, and I have an appreciation for how busy you have been. So really big thanks uh, for joining me. I'm going to um, put in the show notes your online uh, links and so forth so people can find out more about you and the work that you do. Is there anything you'd like to throw into the mix before we wrap up?
1: No um not really, other than don't don't be frightened to, to kind of reach out. I think um I, I I think it can be people like you and I, Richard, even though I know you're not intimidating and hopefully you know I'm not, when when you're kind of starting out in particular or, you know, you see someone from afar, you can be a bit reticent to approach them. Um, don't be afraid. Just reach out. I'm always happy to kind of connect with um Psychologists, new, old, in between. Um, I, you know, I'm passionate about our community. So yeah, so so never be afraid to reach out.
0: Well, that's that's a lovely note to finish on, Haley. Uh, um, sorry, Doctor Haley. A massive. <laughs> don't forget. <laughs> I don't forget. No, then the intimidation comes <laughs> Thanks, out. Thanks,
1: Doctor Richard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Mutual appreciation club Liz, thank you so much um, I know listeners if you have questions you can either get in touch with Haley directly or, or send them in via the usual channels you can get in touch with us on Twitter at my pocket psych or send an email if you prefer to podcast at worklifepsye.com but for now thank you so much thank you for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com contact. Thanks for listening.